Welcome to the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast. I'm your host, Wes McAdams. Here we have one goal, learn to love like Jesus. I'm so glad that you have taken the time to join us for our Bible study today. We are doing a series of podcast episodes entitled, What Does This Passage Mean? And we're just working our way through various passages of scripture and trying to figure out what does this passage mean? And when we ask that question, we mean, what did it mean to its original audience and how does it apply to our life today? So if there's a passage of scripture that you would like for us to discuss, you can send that to us using the contact us page at radicallychristian.com, or you could call and leave a voicemail. We would love to play your voicemail on the podcast. The phone number that you can call is 707-238-2216. That's 707-238-2216. And we would love to work through and, and talk about and study the passage of scripture that's on your mind and your heart. I am so excited for today's passage, one, because it's a very interesting passage. It's one that uh, that many people have talked about and have tried to interpret over the, the centuries, really. Um, and I think that you're going to gain a lot of insight uh, from talking about and, and listening to this discussion of this passage. I will warn listeners that if you're listening with your kids, we may be talking about some things of a, of a sexual nature today, so you might want to... Uh, listen to this one before you allow your your young ones to listen to it because it might be a little bit graphic, uh, but uh, sometimes that's the way scripture is. We are going to be talking about Genesis chapter 9, talking about the sin of Ham and the curse of Canaan, and here to talk about that passage is my friend, Dr. Thomas Jackson. Brother Jackson, thank you so much for being with us today. Brother Wes, I'm happy to be here with you, man. How are you? I'm doing very well, doing very well. Even better now having you on the podcast finally. <laughs> I've been looking forward to it, so I'm excited that our time has come, and I'm looking forward to our journey in the passage. Me too. Well, I, I told you before we we started recording that I, I actually went and listened to the video that you recorded, and you've you've done several of these videos where you talk about interpreting difficult passages of the Bible. And I would encourage people to check out the videos that you've done. And I will link to this specific one on Genesis chapter nine because it was incredibly insightful. And I'm so excited for them to hear, uh, go back and and watch that lesson, but also uh, for you to hear the things that that we're going to talk about today. So I'm going to read the passage first, and then. We'll just, we'll jump right into it. So it's Genesis chapter nine, starting in verse 20. It says, Noah began to be a, a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned sorry their, their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him he said cursed be Canaan a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers he also said blessed be the Lord the God of Shem and let Canaan be his servant may God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So a lot of this passage obviously has to do with Noah's 
nakedness and what does that mean? So with that in mind, let's let's jump into the passage, but but maybe even before we get specific in Genesis 9, uh, Brother Jackson, let's let's talk about Genesis in general. If somebody's reading through Genesis, and most of us have some familiarity with the book, but what should people be noticing as they read through Genesis or as they think about Genesis that's going to help them understand what this specific passage means? All right. Well, I appreciate that. And some of the things I I believe, Wes, is when we're reading scripture in general, uh, specifically right now with Genesis, is to appreciate the distance between an Eastern culture and the culture that we live in. And But before we lay on top of the scriptures with our culture, appreciating the worldview of the writer, and that's going to allow us to see some things that perhaps we take for granted. And even in metaphors, Hebrew metaphors, uh, idioms that are not common to us, uh, we miss that when there's not that connection. So when we're reading through specifically right now in the book of Genesis, there are some Hebrew idioms that if you don't have appreciation for them, it's easy to make this passage mean something that the writer never intended for it to mean. And when we're doing those kinds of things, one of the things I would encourage is for real Bible students is there's really no substitute for close attention to the text. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no substitute for that. Um, and we should be trying to read the Bible in its original language, but if we're not going to do that, we need to read the, tr- that Bible or that verse, those passages from multiple translations to make sure we get in a fuller picture uh, and not just depend on one version to give us the entire picture. Um, and with that being said, the other thing I would say that we need to consider is appreciating that the Bible has its own context and is not our context, it's the context of the writer. You follow me? Um, And then, you know, patterns are important. When I do Bible study, patterns are important to me. You know, I do word studies um, and word studies are important. You know, word studies help you understand what that word means. But I also believe patterns has a higher rank than just word studies. When you follow a pattern of words, and how a author is using a particular word, it helps you get closer to what the author is intending as opposed to just a word study. So when you're looking at the book of Genesis, specifically the passage we're looking at today, what's going to help us is the pattern mm-hmm. of a phrase. And when you appreciate the pattern of the phrase, you get closer to understanding how Hebrew-speaking people or the first audience would have understood what the writer is saying. Yeah, I think that's so important. Just, I don't mean to throw you a curveball here, but but you brought up a really important point, I think, and that is paying attention to when an idiom might be used. And I think that that's, that's really challenging, isn't it? To know, to, because we don't know what we don't know. And so we might be unaware that an idiom is being used. And so we translate it or not translate it, but we interpret it in a very flat way. And we just take it at its literal meaning and its actual meaning isn't, it wasn't intended for it to be taken in a literal way. Absolutely. We say, I always use raining cats and dogs. We don't mean it's raining cats and dogs. And if you're familiar with that, 
that idiom, then you know what it is. But if you're not, you might be completely confused. So if you're reading scripture, how do you know, or what might be some indications, what might be some clues that an idiom might be used here, or this this may not, I, I, I might not should be taking this in a, in a just flat, literal way? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> some of it is when the language, if a text seems to be complex, and then there's language thrown in that seems not to fit uh, you're probably reading uh, an idiomatic expression. Uh, for example, when when you use when you see the phrase to expose the feet of somebody, mm-hmm. that phrase is a Hebrew idiom, which actually is a reference to sexual genitals. Mm-hmm. So, but we won't express exposing the feet as a sexual connotation. We just think it means exposing the feet, but you can trace that pattern of exposing feet. You know, you know, Israel is exposed as a prostitute to say she exposed her feet to any vice by uh, come buyers. Uh, it was a sexual uh, when no uh, Moses's wife circumcised her son. It says she threw the uh, foreskin at his feet. It's really saying she touched his genitals. But see, those are idioms that we won't see because of the disconnect between the language and the culture. So if something is somewhat complex, but then the language or the response seems to be incomparable to what's going on in the narrative, we're probably reading an idiom. And and that's really I'm so glad that you pointed out about the importance or the helpfulness of reading from multiple translations and and sometimes we we tend to think I grew up thinking that the more literal a translation the better the translation and and sometimes there's some truth to that but at other times a a a version or a translation that's more of a paraphrase can be helpful in this area because it can expose the actual meaning of a phrase rather than the literal translation of a phrase. And as a reader, as a Christian who's trying to follow the will of God, sometimes the meaning is is more important than, than what it literally says, because as you said, we're in a different culture. That's exactly right. And, and I agree with you. Some dynamic um, translations help us dis- in the, in the translation work, they would translate things that are live metaphors that still exist, or they would translate it as a dead metaphor, that it existed at that time, but now it's changed meaning. Um, mm-hmm. And we need to know the difference. And some of your dynamic uh, translations, New Living Translations, those kind of things, will help you appreciate uh, the author's intentional meaning in their culture. Um, because again, like you said, Sometimes if I translate it literally, I can get the literal translation, but I don't know what it literally means. Mm-hmm. No pun intended. Um, but, you know, I can have word for word, but if I don't have the context or the language, I still won't know what it means. It would be like you and I, if you're from a different culture and I were to say the cowboys are going to go to the frozen tundra and beat up the cheeseheads. Now, if you're from this culture and if you're a sports fan, 
you would know I'm talking about the Dallas Cowboys going to Green Bay to have a, a match with the Green Bay Packers. I'm talking NFL football, even though I never mentioned football at all. Yeah. But someone in China could have a literal translation of that and still not know that I'm talking sports. Yeah. Well, and, and I brought up I brought up one time the idea of raining cats and dogs and and a Spanish speaker after the service said that in the country they came from and I forget which country it was or if, if this is common in Latin America but they said that literally translated the way they use a, a similar idiom is it's raining a big stick and of course that wouldn't make any sense to us if we translate that literally nor would the phrase raining cats and dogs make sense to them if we translated it literally so it would be more helpful if somebody was translating from english to spanish and trying to communicate the same idea to translate the phrase it's raining cats and dogs to it's raining a big stick and they would understand what that idiom meant because it 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 moved to their culture and something that would be roughly equivalent and you're getting closer to the author's intent when you do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So as we sort of narrow our focus here, and I think that setting of the stage is really important uh, because it really takes, it takes not only translators, but it takes commentators and it takes scholars for all of us to better understand this culture and try to bridge that gap between the 21st century American mind and the, 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 thousands of years ago, Hebrew mind and the, and the original audience. So as we sort of narrow our focus to this specific story about Noah and his sons, what should we notice here in this, in this particular passage? About the sons? Oh, oh, what's going on? Sure, in sure. Yeah, yeah. If, in order to, to kind of understand it, what should we be observing as we, as we read this story? Yeah. A um, couple of things. We're going to look at language. Um, but some of the problematics that have come with it is how we've translated it from a westernized culture. And I want us to try to divorce our worldview from perhaps what the Hebrew language or the Hebrew speaking people would have understood. And there are a couple of things we just need to rule out about the passage on what it's not saying in order to help us focus in on what it could be saying. And a couple of those things, Wes, is this passage is not about racism. Hmm. You know, there's been a circle of thought that this is a passage that uh, justifies uh, slavery. Um, this passage is not about, you know, there are a couple of translations, a couple of interpretations that have been given to this passage. And a lot of it has to do, again, with our interpretation of scripture from a westernized world, separating uh, the Hebrew idioms. And so to help us appreciate that, some of the things that we've considered to be interpretive of this is voyeurism, you know, castration or even paternal incest. Um, but when we walk through the passage, what we're going to see is those really don't fit the narrative uh, as a good interpretation. They're very popular, but it doesn't really fit if we're going to be honest with the passage. You know, voyeurism doesn't explain why Canaan is cursed. Hmm. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. 
you know, Canaan is Ham's son. So if it was voyeurism, you know, why is Canaan cursed? So that really doesn't make a lot of sense for that. Um, some that, have. No, but, sorry, sorry to interrupt you for just a second, but that that really would be the the literal and flat reading of the text. Because if we just read it and we weren't familiar with any sort of idiom from a Hebrew perspective, we would just think, oh, well, Ham walked into the tent, saw his father naked looked right. at him. I've heard people say, well, maybe he laughed at him or he was making fun of him, but he was he was gawking at his father's nakedness. And then he walked out and told his brothers. And then when Noah wakes up, he finds out, oh, you looked at me while I was naked. And so he curses. And as you said, he curses his son, which to your point, wouldn't wouldn't connect those things. But that would be the, the literal or flat reading of it and not right. allowing for any idiomatic phrases. Absolutely. Um, and, and that's a great observation. Um, some have believed, have taken the approach that um, Ham castrated his father to avoid them having a fourth son. You know, he had the, you know, the three boys, Shem, Ham and Japheth, and he didn't want to have a fourth son because then you have to share, um, you know, the inheritance. And some believe out of out of selfishness and greed that he castrated him. Um, but. It's interesting that Noah actually curses Ham's fourth son. Canaan is Ham's fourth son, right? Um, and it's believed that Canaan is cursed in revenge of uh, Noah being castrated. But when you understand these phrases that we're going to look at, that's not going to line up as well either in the big picture. And then I'm sure you've heard. Go ahead. That that was the first time that I had heard that when I listened to your lesson on this text. Right? I had never heard I had never heard the castration uh, interpretation. But again, I, I think that going back to the idea of an idiom, that that certainly would be an idiomatic way of reading it. But if that if that interpretation isn't supported by the rest of the way that that phrase is used throughout Scripture, because there's nothing in the text that would literally point to a castration, and so a person who was making that interpretation, they would be interpreting it in a figurative sort of way, but there's no support to that that way of of using the phrase or the idea of exposing nakedness to mean castration. And so, uh, yeah, but it, it it is interesting that we sometimes use things like the fourth son and fourth son to try to tie those two things together. But I agree with you. I don't I don't think that that's supported. But I had never heard that interpretation. Okay, well, I'm sure you've heard the interpretation of the homosexual component. Mm hmm. Is that, you know, some have concluded that, well, uncovering Noah's nakedness is Ham had homosexual activity with his own father. And that's actually an interpretation that's very common among academia, that this is something, a violation, you know, homosexual, that his son, you know, had sex with his father. And as a result, you know, he, he curses his son. But, you know, if that be the case, you know, keep in mind that the brothers, you know, when they came, became aware of whatever happened, they went in to cover this. They didn't want to see it. They went to cover it. Um, <laughs> that, that, that doesn't hold well when we look at the passage. 
And it's a very popular interpretation, but what's really going to help us, Wes, is understanding that phrase to see someone's nakedness or to uncover their nakedness. When we understand that from a Hebrew expression, I believe the passage began to unfold itself. Mm-hmm. And we just have to do that through patterns and, and tracing the patterns of that phrase through other passages to help us understand how a writer and how a Hebrew understanding audience would have understood that phrase. I just want to take a short break from our Bible study to tell you that if you are enjoying this discussion, you might also enjoy my book, Beyond the Verse. You can find the audio version of the book at radicallychristian.com slash audible. That's radicallychristian.com slash audible. And if you're not already an Audible subscriber, you can actually get my book for free when you sign up for a free trial. So go to radicallychristian.com slash audible. Now back to the Bible study. Yeah. And I think that it is helpful to, and I think you're, you're, you'll walk us through this and we'll see this as we continue to go and, and look at that, the way that that phrase is used. I think that it's, it is accurate to say that the, the homosexual violation of Noah is on the right track in that they're beginning to see through the way that that phrase is used throughout scripture, that there, there is something sexual that's happening here, that it isn't just, as you said in the beginning, it's not just voyeurism. It's not just that Ham happened to see his father naked and he looked at him or he laughed at him. There's something more happening here. So I think that that popular interpretation of realizing that something sexual has happened here is on the right track. But I agree with you. I think that there's more to it. And it really does become clear as you as you look at some of the other passages. So let's kind of walk through that. And and how can we better understand what that phrase uncover the nakedness is referring to? Okay. Um, so right at the top, and, and then there's a passage I need to read if that's okay. Um, yeah. right, right at the top is the Hebrew euph- euphemism to see the nakedness or to uncover someone's nakedness is the euphemism of sexual intercourse or sexual contact. So that, that is true. Um, mm-hmm. that, in, that has some sexual activity involved. Um, so as we look at it, if we can equate seeing nakedness is the same as uncovering nakedness. That's important. Seeing nakedness is the same as uncovering nakedness. And the passage I would like to read is Leviticus chapter 20, uh, verses 17 through 21. Is that all right? Yeah. Is that okay? For, all right. And this is um, ESV. It says, if a man takes his sister, a daughter of his father or a daughter of his mother, and sees her nakedness, there's that phrase, and she sees his nakedness. It is a disgrace, and they shall be cut off in the sight of the children of their people. Watch this. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness, and he shall bear his iniquity. So the idea is when you see someone nakedness is also the same as uncovering their nakedness. Verse 18, he says, if a man lies with a woman during her menstrual period and uncovers her nakedness. See, if he lays with her and uncover her nakedness, he has made naked her fountain and she has uncovered the fountain of her blood. 
both of them shall be cut off from among their people. You shall not uncover, verse 19, the nakedness of your mother's sister or your father's sister, for that is to make naked one's relative. It's getting ready to happen. They shall bear their iniquity. If a man lies, here it is. If a man lies with his uncle's wife, that's so important. If a man lies or sleeps with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. You see that? Yeah. Is the man has slept with his uncle's wife, but is referred to as uncovering his uncle's nakedness and they shall bear their sin, they shall die childless. And then verse 21 says, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. Now, there's no sexual activity between the man and his brother. The man has slept with his brother's wife, and that's referred to as that man has uncovered his brother's nakedness. Mm -hmm. I when you when you said this in your lesson on this text, it was mm -hmm. like a light bulb moment. I don't know that I had ever heard this this connected, but it makes perfect sense what what the way that you're connecting these two texts and the way that this the meaning, the interpretation, I think the correct interpretation of this this Hebrew idiom has come to light when you compare it with Leviticus chapter 20. Yeah. And, and it's been in the Bible forever. Right. <laughs> I didn't put it in there. It's been in there for a long time. Um, and then if you were to tie that, because this is not, that phrase is, is repetitive. If you were to tie that to Leviticus 18 verses six through 10, you will see it gets more specific. You follow me? Um, at verse seven, well, yeah, verse 7 says, You should not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You should not uncover her nakedness. You should not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. All right? So if we're talking nakedness to see someone's nakedness or to uh, uncover someone's nakedness is equivalent to sexual involvement. The passage here, verse eight says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is your father's nakedness. To see your father's nakedness has not a lot to do with sexual intercourse with your father. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Verse nine will say, you should not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether brought up in the family or in another house. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own. Um, Leviticus 20 and Leviticus 18 is about sexual laws. Here's things you just don't do. And what you don't do in all those passages is to uncover somebody's nakedness and to uncover somebody's nakedness or to see someone nakedness is, is when you violate that person with somebody else. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And and I think that to to be clear, I think what you're saying and what the text is saying, it's not to say that same sex homosexual sexual relations are not condemned by the law because they were, but that's it's not spoken of in those terms. That sort of same sex violation is not spoken of this way. This way of speaking about sexual immorality is about violating either a, a man violating a woman or violating a man by sleeping with that man's wife, especially as it pertains to relatives. And it's amazing how it's in the exact same context that we're talking about a son or a nephew or a brother who is violating his male relative by having sexual relations with that person's wife. And and it's it's said in exactly the same way that that our story in Genesis 9 lays it out. Exactly, exactly. And and when you talk about same sex, you know, it's many times led with the phrase of things being unnatural. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, these, you know, these sexual laws in Leviticus, he's talking about, OK, this the sexual behavior is natural, but there are certain people you shouldn't be engaged with sexually because it exposes someone's nakedness. Right. Um, Which is really interesting to me. So that pattern, you know, and we could keep going through that pattern, but that pattern is extremely important if we're going to understand Genesis nine. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to be really clear, I, and I think that, I think that we wouldn't even have to say the conclusion. I think that just reading those things, you know, if, if we get to this point in the study, I think that everybody is starting to put the pieces together. But but just to be clear to everyone, what what do you believe happened in a literal sense with Ham? Okay, um, let's rule out a couple of things and then let's leave the last thing on the table. Yeah, uh, and, and see what it is. Um, so we, if, if those phrases are true. And they are. We can rule out uh, paternal incest that uh, Ham has sex with his father. We ought to be able to rule that out based on how seeing someone's nakedness is a violation of that person by sleeping with that person's mate. Mm-hmm. Right. We ought to be able to rule that out because, um, again, you know, if a man lies with the woman, you know, he exposes that man's nakedness but he slept with the woman. Um, you know, if you remember Leviticus, uh, yeah, Leviticus um, 20 verse 18, when he says he's lying with, that's sexual relations, right? Uncovering sexual relations. Lying with is sexual relations. Uncovering is sexual relations. So when you go back and look at Leviticus 20, verses 17 through 21, you're going to see that uncovering this nakedness has everything to do with another person. And it's the embarrassment or the shame that is brought up on the person. So what really happens is Ham shames his father. Um, So when you talk about paternal is not that Ham sexually violated Noah. So we can take that off, mm-hmm. right? If we're, if we're honest to the phrase in the text, here's an observation. 
again, uncovering an, another man's wife is the equivalent of uncovering that man's nakedness. Right? Another translation, sexual relations, uncovering a man's nakedness is to uncover that man's wife. Another way of saying the exact same thing is the sexual relations is not with the man, is with the man's wife. Right? All right. And so the insight would be when I uncover, when I see a man's nakedness, that's not homosexual behavior. Uh, what that is, is more so forbidden heterosexual relationship. Okay. So then when we talk about that, what is the real sin that Ham committed? And based on his sin, why is Canaan cursed? All right. Um, so it's not voyeurism. It's not homosexual activity. It's not paternal father uh, incest. Uncovering Noah's nakedness is maternal incest. Mm -hmm. What Ham did, Wes, based on the phrasing, is Ham sexually violated his own mother, Noah's wife, and by doing that, he uncovered his father's nakedness. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And so then what you have, even, even to the point when you look at Leviticus 18, the sexual laws, if you look at verse three, he says, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt. Watch how they see Canaan, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I'm about to bring you. You shall not walk in their statues. Okay. This helps us appreciate, I believe, why Ham's brothers kind of did what they did, um, because the interpretation is if Ham fathers a child, now his children get to be in the line of leadership. It's almost like a usurping authority kind of thing. You follow me? Yeah. Yeah. The same thing happened with David and Absalom. Mm-hmm. When, when Absalom tried to take the kingdom from his father, the advisor gave him the advice, if you want to do this, you need to expose your father's nakedness. And what did Absalom do? He slept with one of the concubines in public that everybody would know that his son shamed him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so then by the time you walk through this, Why is Canaan cursed then? The text says, Genesis 9, verse 22, and Ham, the father of Canaan. See, that's interesting that the writer puts that in there. Mm -hmm. That Ham, comma, the father of Canaan. He lets us know very specifically that something bad happened. You know, why bring up Canaan? Canaan is the fourth son. Why not bring up the other boys? Mm -hmm. And see, this is one of those things we were talking about earlier. If you read too fast, you miss it. Um, Canaan is the fourth son. Why not mention the other three? 
because Canaan is tied to the sin. Mm-hmm. Verse 22 says, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Right? He went and told them what he had done. Observation. Exposing a man's nakedness is to have sexual relations with that man's spouse. Mm -hmm. Right? What we have... Specifically... uh Sorry to interrupt you. And specifically, as you said before, just like Absalom did to David, it's an it's not just sleeping with another man's and we have a hard time as you've been pointing out understanding this because it's so much different in our in our culture if if a man slept with his mother that would be something that that would be done you know something that we would even the culture would look at as a perversion as something that that was wrong and 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 wicked and and something that somebody would do behind closed doors and they wouldn't want anybody to know about it but this is something that Ham comes out and brags about because right. exposing a man's nakedness is to humiliate him on purpose to sleep with his wife on purpose so that you can show your dominance over him. And so I think that this interpretation is is exactly right and is in keeping with the sort of sexual immorality and sexual dominance and using sexuality as a way to humiliate and dominate other people that unfortunately was part of pagan culture, was part of ancient culture, and unfortunately was part of the biblical story as well. Man, that's very insightful. That's very insightful. Um, which, which, which brings us to that crux. If all of that be true about the phrases, the reason Canaan is cursed, being the fourth son, Canaan is the result of that maternal incest that Ham had with his mother, Noah's wife, that when Ham sleeps with his mother, he exposes the nakedness of his father. Based on the on the and what happens if Canaan is given the right, then Canaan becomes a new dynasty and Ham will reign. So it's like taking the, the, the leadership from his father. So to prevent that, Noah says, cursed be Canaan. Canaan will not reign. He says, we're not going to give the dynasty over uh, uh, to this relationship that should not have happened. In fact, not only is he cursed, his descendants shall be servants of Japheth and Shem. You follow me? Yeah, and I I think that as, as I heard you give this lesson, it made me think about just 10 chapters later, we have the story about Lot and his daughters and and how they took advantage of their father and how the Moabites and the Ammonites came from that sexual immorality. And that 
shine some light on this story in that the Canaanites came from this sexual immorality. And so you have these different family trees that came from this sort of behavior that the law itself is exposing as wicked and wrong and the way of the world and not the way of God's people. And so it makes perfect sense that the, the, law that Genesis is a part of would give us these stories, give Israel these stories as they go into the promised land to remember this is this is the way, as you said, this is the way of the Canaanites. This is the way of the Amorites. This is the way of the Ammonites and the Moabites. This is the way of these people. This is not the way you are supposed to live. This is not the way God's people are supposed to behave. Absolutely. And, that, and that's a good tie-in, you know, with, with the daughters of Lot. Um, and even those nations started from a sexual um, impropriety, started from something that shouldn't have happened. And those nations grew to be known for sexual manipulation. You know, the Moabites are known for sexually enticing the Israelites so much so they wanted to sexually entice them and then wanted to have Balaam cast a curse on them. Mm-hmm. It's the sexual laws that says there are some things in a heterosexual relationship, there are some that just should not happen. Mm-hmm. And when they do, things like this are born. Yeah. Let me let me ask you, as we sort of try to wrap this up just a little bit, because my mind goes in, in about a dozen different directions. If we read the text this way, and I, and I completely agree, and I think this is in keeping with the big picture of Genesis, there are some of the details that I'm sure that people are thinking, because this is probably new information to a lot of people, as it was to me. If, if we read it this way, and we, we read things like Noah got drunk and he lay, it says in verse 21, he lay uncovered in his tent. Mm-hmm. If if this is about Ham taking advantage of his mother and having a child through that, that relationship, then what does Noah laying uncovered in his tent or even the brothers backing in and, and covering over what has happened, how do we make sense of those details as part of the story? Yeah. Um, Part of it is Genesis is not read, uh, should not be read like chronology. Mm. Um, it is to tell the story. And here's, here's something that's different than the way that we read. Um, their worldview is not focused on chronology as much as, it, that, as, much as we are. You know, we want to know how it happened, when it happened, and what was going on. The intent is to tell you the story. Uh, Chronos, or time, is not the focus for uh, the Hebrew culture. I give you a case in point earlier in Genesis. Genesis 1, you have the creation of man, right? And, but then in Genesis 2, well, in, in Genesis 1, you have the creation of man, and it says he created both male and female. That's Genesis 1. But you go to chapter over in Genesis 2, then you only have the man and then the garden, and then he puts the man in the garden, and then he fashions the woman. Well, if you read that chronology, she was fashioned in Genesis 1, but she wasn't. So it's not about 
chronology, it's about the story. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not trying to confuse you there. I hope you don't. Um, no, I think that's I think that's a really good way to put it. And and correct me if I'm wrong. This it sounds like maybe what you're saying. Like if we read verse 21 with that in mind, we might read it to say that Noah drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent, and then sort of a a colon after that, as it were, as if to say, and here's how that story went: that Noah he got drunk and he he was humiliated, and here's how he was humiliated. So is that sort of the way we might interpret that? It, it is because there's a uh, in his nakedness is is a um, is a is a is a time span. Hmm. Because Canaan, you know, by this time Canaan is 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 born and he's grown. That didn't happen in two verses. Time has gone by, right? See, Ms. Noah had to carry the baby before he's cursed. So time has gone by. You follow me? Um, the brothers cover the nakedness. Um but then the aftermath is time. And we can't read one verse and go to the next verse and here's what happened. No more, uh, Wes, is in Genesis 4 when you have the children. You know, you have Canaan, then the next, I mean, Cain, and then the next verse you get Abel, and then the next verse they're grown. Right. But time passed. To the right. point where they were old enough to want to offer sacrifices, hmm. but we we when you eliminate all that time, you misread the story, and the writer is not giving it to us to give us the details of the time. He's writing us to tell us the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When and I think that there's so many. You talked in the beginning about the patterns that we mm-hmm. see in scripture and there's amazing it's amazing how how many patterns there are repeated between the fall and the post this post flood event and how Noah is almost this second Adam and and just like with Adam now there's another sin and now there's again nakedness and there's a covering over of the nakedness and so Picking up on those yeah. themes and then seeing how those themes and those patterns play out, not just in these two stories, but throughout Scripture of of the humiliation of man through sin, and then the covering over of that. Because I assume that that the alternative to the brothers covering over Noah's impropriety, or not necessarily Noah's impropriety, but his humiliation and his nakedness, would be what Jerusalem did when when Absalom slept with David's concubines on the roof of the palace and and exposed the nakedness of David Jerusalem didn't turn away from Absalom they they respected him and they said well I guess Absalom's in charge now because he's exposed his father's nakedness he he's he's dominated his father so I guess he's in charge now and Shem and Japheth didn't do that. They looked away and they covered over their father's nakedness. Is that how we should sort of interpret what that, they did? That's that's a great observation. That's a great observation. I, I think you said it very plainly. That's a great observation. So I'm how a- would we... Mm-hmm. I appreciate that, brother. Uh, how, how would we 
apply some of this to, I mean, again, if we just read this flatly and we were just, well, this is about getting drunk and, and, you know, and making a, making a mess of your life because you got drunk. And I guess, you know, I guess there's worse things you could take away from it. But I think if we see this very beautiful, nuanced, and when I say beautiful, I mean, complicated, uh, mm-hmm. horrible, but also exposing something about humanity and theology and God and sin and righteousness, what can we take away from this interpretation of the text and say, this shows me something about myself or about God or about how I should live? Yeah. One of the main disconnects is the culture in which produces the Bible is is based on an honor-shame culture. Uh, this is about honor and shame. And now we, we have a shame culture here too, but it's different. You know, we're actually more individualistic and often, you know, I'm not faulting uh, what, what, what we do, but often when we're reading, sometimes I'm a stereotype, we read to find the sin, the grace, the uh, reconciliation, the right wrong mm-hmm. of, of, of a story to show how God showed up to redeem. And we miss reading the narratives to look at real life. Mm. And when we look at real life, you see the honor and the shame, the hurt, the disappointment of what life would have been like when these families are going through this. Um, when When we can see that from their perspective, I think it brings insight to us in our culture that one, these are real people, mm-hmm. had real struggles, and rather than being quick to draw a conclusion or to judge it, see it for a real life. See the life story. And that even through the brokenness, the honor and the shame, God is never far away to heal any of that. Mm-hmm but we don't need to read it just for the right and the wrong. We need to read it to see how people did life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's I think that's so important and I think that I think that it 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 does it shows us it shows us the brokenness of of the world. It shows us the brokenness of of all humanity. It shows us our own brokenness. It shows us what what real life is and what real life is like and the the consequences of of living and doing what's right in our own eyes as opposed to to following the will of God. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well brother, thank you. Thank you so much for for shining some light on this and and bringing this greater context and bre- greater appreciation for the nuances and the beauty of scripture and and the the brokenness of humanity which exposes the 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 beauty of the the grace of God. So thank you brother for for this and for all you're doing. Brother West has been a pleasure for me. I'm glad I could do it. I'm glad we got the time to do this together. Uh, let's see what the schedules look like. Sounds great. Sounds great. Thank you brother. You owe me lunch. Sounds great. 
Thank you so much for being part of the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast today. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I want to give a special thanks to Travis Pauly and to our McDermott Road Church family for making this podcast possible. As always, we love you, God loves you, and we hope that you have a wonderful day.